Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Postscript, a special series from New Books and Political Science on the New Books Network. Our podcast welcomes scholars who have written extensively on a topic to offer insights into contemporary politics. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today's Postscript focuses on abortion politics in the United States, with particular attention to the April 7, 2023 federal court decisions in Texas and Washington controlling access to methoprostine and the wider political forces at play. We have a slightly different format for today's podcast spanning four time zones. First, legal historian Mary Ziegler shares insights on the two cases and why the Texas opinion is such a radical departure with regards to standing and legal language. Then political scientist Rebecca Kreitzer provides a deep dive on the role of the Comstock Act of 1873 and why this 19th century law helps us understand 21st century politics. Then Renee Ann Kramer and Josh C. Wilson pull back the curtain on the cases to expose the ways in which those who oppose abortion have created parallel organizations to provide the false expertise relied upon in the Texas decision. We also talk about the wider implications of banning approved medications for trans people. Mary Ziegler is the Martin Luther King Professor of Law at UC Davis and recent recipient of a Guggenheim, and I'm delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. Mary, I thought we would start with these two cases that came down on Friday, one out of Texas, the other out of Washington. And I've had some really, really smart people call me and say, I just don't even understand how a judge in a state can make a decision for the rest of the country. So could could you just tell us a little bit about what was in each and why it would affect everyone else. And then we'll turn to the sort of specifics of what was going on in the in the Texas decision. Yeah, um, so uh, the two cases, I mean, part of the problem here involves um, nationwide injunctions, essentially, which courts can use to bind the federal government um, and they 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 have they didn't used to be common. They became much more common kind of during the Obama and Trump years. And I think part part of the problem is that right that we have a growing number of judges who, in theory, are presiding just over their districts, but are increasingly using these equitable practices nationwide um, in ways that are pretty problematic. But the two cases uh, one involved seventeen liberal states in D.C. who were arguing that the rules governing mifepristone, which is a drug used in over half the abortions in the U.S., were unnecessarily restrictive given the science on mifepristone. Uh, That case um, resulted in the judge essentially saying, I'm not at this stage in the litigation going to lift any of those restrictions on mifepristone, but I'm also going to order the FDA to preserve access to the drug in the states that brought the lawsuit. The other case was brought by a group of anti-abortion physicians called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, who were represented by the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the largest conservative Christian litigation shops. And that case uh, essentially involved two claims about why access to mifepristone should be barred nationwide. One, that the FDA didn't have the 
authority to approve mifepristone in 2000, the other that the Federal Comstock Act, which is an 1873 anti-vice law that's never been entirely repealed, uh, barred the mailing of mifepristone and therefore basically barred mifepristone because anyone using, dispensing, et cetera, mifepristone is relying on getting it through some kind of um, carrier for the mail. And Judge Kaczmarek in Texas agreed with both of those claims and suspended the approval of mifepristone. His order is not going to go into effect until uh, Saturday, um, obviously pending some kind of intervention from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in the interim. So, the, you know, the FDA basically is under co conflicting orders to do different things that are supposed to, um, in one case, not be nationwide, but these 17 states in D.C., in the other case, something that's supposed to apply to mifepristone nationally. And what will happen since we have those two conflicting cases? What's the, what's the next step? Well, it's sort of hard to say, right? Because we don't know what the Fifth Circuit is going to do. We don't know if the U.S. Supreme Court is going to intervene at any point to stay Judge Kaczmarek's ruling. Um, assuming that that doesn't happen, the likely thing in the short term is that the FDA is not just not going to do anything and it's going to say the best way we can comply with both of these orders is to use our enforcement discretion not to pursue anyone who's dispensing mifepristone, even if it is unapproved, because if we do start pursuing those people, we'll be, at least in those 17 states, acting in, in conflict with Judge Rice's order. I think sooner or later, we're going to have to get clarity from the U.S. Supreme Court just because, you know, the, the FDA being subject to conflicting orders just isn't tenable, I don't think. So we're likely to see this move, I think, relatively quickly through the Fifth Circuit and, and U.S. Supreme Court to get some clarity. Do you think there's five votes on the Supreme Court to uphold this decision? I Frankly, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, on the one hand, I think this was designed for these justices. It's designed to appeal Judge Kaczmarek's case, that is, to people who both are hostile to the administrative state and hostile to abortion rights. Um, on the other hand, there are just a lot of problems with it. I mean, starting out with the fact that I think most scholars don't think the plaintiffs have standing. Um, most scholars think that the statute of limitations on this thing may have run a while ago given that we're talking about a drug approval from 2000 being relitigated in 2023. So there's a question of whether even justices as conservative as the ones we have will use this as the vehicle for continuing to tackle abortion rights or will wait. But I think we all wondered something similar after uh, Texas passed SB8. And of course, the court found a way for Texas to win that case. So I certainly don't think you can rule out the, the possibility of a win for uh, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine here either. I, I just think it's uncertain at this point. So you mentioned standing, and I think many listeners know that you can't just bring a case because you want to. You're supposed to be the person who has somehow suffered some harm. You are supposed to have a standing to bring this case. So uh, 
what are the issues with standing here? Uh, and, and is this a very extreme situation in which this, this group has been granted standing? Yeah, it is. So usually, I mean, I think if you're not familiar with standing, I mean, the lawyers will say you need to have a concrete injury. Non-lawyers sometimes will need to say, you know, you have skin in the game. So it's not just the case that any citizen who doesn't like any law can go to court and try to get a judge to overturn it. It's suppo- There's supposed to be some concrete impact on you as a plaintiff, on your life that you can point to. And here, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine was kind of in an unusual spot. They didn't seem to have patients who had been hurt by mifepristone, um, although they said, you know, they could, right, hypothetically. They said mifepristone is bad. Other people are going to prescribe it. Other patients are going to get hurt. And then we're going to be left dealing with it. But usually that kind of speculative injury isn't enough. Um, Judge Kaczmarek tried to bridge that gap by saying, well, the reason women and other pregnant people aren't here suing themselves is because they're suffering from so much trauma from having had mifepristone abortions that they just are not up to going to court, uh, which is an unusual argument and one that relies on um, anti-abortion literature and studies by anti-abortion um, activists and scholars like David Reardon. Uh, the other way that the uh, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine tried to get around standing essentially is called organizational standing. So their argument was, you know, we've been so busy fighting mifepristone that we've diverted time and money that we would have had to pursue other goals. And that is a theory of standing is also extraordinarily broad, right? I mean, essentially it's saying we've been unhappy about this issue and we've had to bring a lawsuit. And the fact that we brought the lawsuit is a basis for us to bring the lawsuit. I mean, it's very circular. So you have on the one hand, this very speculative theory about doctors and patients they don't have with injuries no one has talked about yet. On the other, you have this theory of organizational standing that is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And all of this is being presented to federal courts, conservative judges who often have had real doubts about third-party standing. Now, admittedly, that was often in the context of cases that would have helped progressives, like on abortion rights. But still, I mean, there's an interesting question of whether judges who've complained about third-party standing as a doctrine are going to embrace a case like this one, where the arguments for standing are pretty extraordinarily weak. It also seems like that standing argument has built into it uh, an incredibly insulting uh, interpretation of women's citizenship. They are so traumatized that they don't know their interests. And given the topic, which is, you know, do women in the United States have the rights to make the decisions about what they'll do with their bodies? The introduction of uh, of yet another layer, which is that women don't even know what their interests are to bring them to court. And we need, in a patronizing way uh, to do it. Patronizing literally and figuratively seems just kind of an extraordinary thing to put into a decision. It's weird too, because no one is actually seeing this, right? I mean, and there are, there are people um, who say they regret their abortions who could theoretically have been plaintiffs here. But what's even more extraordinary is essentially Judge Kaczmarek saying, you know, we don't even really need anybody to complain about having had a mythopristone abortion because we know the reason they're not doing that is because they're traumatized, which is even more disenfranchising, right? Because it's not, it doesn't, no one is even going to ask 
women, hey, you know, are you are you dramatized or not? Essentially, if you're not in court suing, it either means you're too traumatized to sue or you have to be in court suing. Like there's no situation where you're not being in court suing could mean you have no problem with the Bristol, right? <laughs> like you want access to it. That's not an option on the table. So um, I think that too. And, and also I think the fact that the standing analysis, like much of the opinion, ends up being um, an opportunity for Judge Kaczmarek to cite, you know, anti-abortion studies, use anti-abortion talking points. It's not simply a case where he does that when, you know, there's some kind of legal question that he has to decide one way or another, and he decides it in a way that would favor the anti-abortion movement. I mean, there are moments where he just throws in the talking points and the research just because he can, right? There's no kind of obligation to it a lot of these junctures. You've written a fabulous piece for The Atlantic, which we'll link to the show notes for the podcast. And you focus on two things that I would really like to dig into a little bit. One is the language of this opinion and how extraordinary it is, even in comparison to some of what we saw in the Dobbs case, which also seemed extreme and radical and brought, as you were saying, some of these sources in which are are, are not particularly um, uh, scholarly or uh, you know uh, have evidence to f- for their claims. But let's talk just a little bit about that the language, and then I also want to talk to you about what you think is really behind this, uh, which has to do with fetal personhood that you've written about extensively. But, but let's start with this language of this decision. Why, why are people saying this is, and why are people like you saying that this is different? This is, this is extreme. Well, I think to begin with, courts often kind of follow a process like the Associated Press in the sense that when they're talking about issues like abortion that are deeply divisive, they either try to follow the language used by medical professionals or they try to use terms that are viewed as neutral, right? So you'll often see the AP saying anti-abortion and abortion rights rather than pro-life and fair choice because they're trying in that context to suggest that, you know, they're not endorsing one view or another. Or if they are, it's usually in scientific contexts where the American Medical Association, the American College of Obstetricians, Gynecologists, the National Institutes of Health, the FDA, etc., have all weighed in and said, you know, this is just the fact of the matter scientifically. Um, Sometimes you'll also see courts make the move that the Supreme Court did in a case called Gonzalez versus Carhartt on so-called partial birth abortion, where they'll essentially lay out what both sides are saying, and then try to make some kind of profession of respect for people's deeply held beliefs before resolving an opinion. What was extraordinary about Judge Kaczmarek's opinion is he doesn't do either of those things. He essentially only uses terms that are central to the anti-abortion movement, and again, presents those terms and those talking points as fact, right? If you read this opinion in isolation, you would have no idea that the FDA had any evidence about anything or that anyone didn't see the fetus or the abortion issue the way Judge Kaczmarek does. Um, Some of the terms that I think stuck out to people, he referred to, uh, you know, fetuses as unborn children or unborn humans. He referred to doctors who performed those abortions as abortionists. He described people who had chosen abortion as post-abortive women and girls, which is a common 
um, movement term. He, um, I think, even describing what abortion was or why it was happening, used anti-abortion talking points. So I, I think there was a sense in which this was presented as, you know, the anti-abortion movement's views, not as, you know, one perspective in society deserving of respect, but like the law and the facts <laughs> were uncontested and uncontestable. And that's not something you see in opinions and with good reason. You've written a lot about these languages and narratives that are used by um, those opposing abortion rights. And you've particularly written with you know, enormous nuance about the ways in which movements have goals that they can't necessarily realize. And so they move to other goals that are possible. Um, how do you read this opinion in that wider history of uh, desire for uh, different political outcomes on the part of those who oppose abortion? Sure. I mean, so you see, you mentioned uh, fetal personhood. There's, again, a kind of completely gratuitous from a lot of standpoints line at the end of the opinion where Judge Kaczmarek is doing uh, part of an analysis where he's talking about, you know, kind of the costs and benefits of allowing access to mifepristone to continue or stopping it. And he says, you know, the costs of allowing it to continue are what he sees as harms to girls or women. Again, just underscoring, there's no evidence for a lot of what he's saying, but he's saying that. And then secondly, he says, and some would view, you know, the unborn human as a constitutional rights holder, which is the idea of, of fetal personhood. And he says, you know, maybe that's a harm too. So you can see in the opinion what would be kind of the paramount goal of the anti-abortion movement. But you also see uh, Judge Kaczmarek endorsing short-term alternatives that the anti-abortion movement has embraced because fetal personhood seems unachievable in the short term. So um, one, because it would require a constitutional decision of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has turned down an opportunity to take a case on this recently out of Rhode Island, and two, because it doesn't seem possible that voters or Congress would endorse fetal personhood. So the two kind of paths that you see are either the idea that we can revive anti-vice law or that uh, harm to women and girls is another path um, for talking about abortion and limiting access to abortion. Um, I think what's interesting in both contexts is that these paths rely on claims that people in the anti-abortion movement don't really feel particularly strongly about when we compare it uh, to fetal personhood. But there's an awareness, I think, that you need discourses that can appeal to judges and maybe even confuse voters or make voters feel that they're not competent to participate on equal footing, in part because I think there's a growing awareness that, at least at the moment, popular politics are not a friendly place for the movement. And the arguments that the movement is making or prioritizing are often arguments designed for courts, right? Um, not for voters. Do I think that the anti-abortion movement would go to voters with, hey, let's revive 19th century anti-vice laws? And like, no, I don't. 
yeah, so they're they're relying on arguments that are not designed to appeal to voters because they're not trying to. They're relying on the Comstock Act, which I think would be a popular disaster. I don't think voters want to revive Victorian norms. And they're relying on these arguments about the science of Mid-Christone that I think voters would either not understand or not believe. And I think that's all reflective of the fact that they're, I think, openly aware of the fact that while they have an advantage, potentially a strong advantage in the federal courts, they are not going to fare as well with voters. So they're retooling how they're saying things and the content of their communications to talk to federal judges like Kaczmarek as opposed to voters. Um, you mentioned popular, and is, there's a sort of an irony here that in Justice Alito's Dobbs opinion, he sort of made a lot of the fact that this has to go back to the people, it's controversial, uh, the democratic processes and the states have to handle this. And the way it's looked since Dobbs is that, in fact, when it goes back to the state levels, we see very, very mixed results and sometimes unpredictable results. There are places like Kentucky that, in fact, uh, did not reject abortion rights and, in fact, endorsed them. So uh, what do you think comes next in terms of this argument about democracy. I mean, is it just rhetoric from Alito that we really are going to leave this to the states? Or is it the case that, as we're sort of seeming to see here, that in fact, the federal judiciary will continue to insert themselves in a sense against what Alito said was our next phase in the discussion of abortion in America? Yeah, I mean, I think just to begin with, it was a little disingenuous to say Dobbs was a pro-democratic decision because, I mean, at, at a minimum, right, it was a majoritarian decision. Usually we think of democracy as involving, you know, fundamental rights that majorities can't take away, like the right to vote. Um, and the idea that you would look at 19th century norms that excluded at a time when women couldn't vote and say, essentially, we can take rights away that people who were disenfranchised at that time were not allowed to demand in the name of democracy is not a very, I think, satisfying or well-explained definition of democracy. Having said that, there is an idea of democracy in Dobbs, at least majoritarian politics, right? That if people in a state want abortion to be legal or illegal or whatever, you know, majority rules. And we've seen, I think, that when voters are presented directly with the abortion question, so in other words, not asked to pick between Republicans and Democrats, but just ask straight up, do you want abortion legal in your state, yes or no? Abortion rights have fared really well. I mean, I think that of all the six ballot initiatives, voters have sided with, you know, either expanding abortion rights or at least not contracting them in all six. Uh, so I think... The interesting question is is more whether Alito is committed to, even in the court as a whole, even this kind of thin idea of majoritarianism that Dobbs lays out, or whether that's even a bridge too far and the democracy rhetoric was just a, a justification for getting rid of Roe, and that the court will be interested in taking the issue out of democratic politics. Um, I think you were unlikely, again, to see the court reconstitutionalize the issue in the short term, 
I'd be surprised if the court does that eventually, but I mean, I, I don't think they will soon. Brett Kavanaugh, Justine Dobbs said, you know, that the Constitution is scrupulously neutral, and so it would be pretty silly for him less than a year later to say, just kidding, actually it's not. <laughs> so I think we'd be looking more at other ways the court could take this issue out of popular politics, like relying on the Comstock Act. And I, I could totally see these justices saying, hey, you know, if voters don't like the Comstock Act, they can pick members of Congress who will repeal it. Um, but I don't know if that's what they're going to do again, right? Because I think upholding the outcome of Judge Kaczmarek's decision is to go considerably further than the court did in Dobbs. And so while we can infer a lot from what happened in Dobbs and how conservative the court is, we can't necessarily infer that the court is that much more conservative and that much less invested in democracy. Um, but I think we can't rule it out either. So I think this is... Um, Selling Adam Liptak, I think this is boundary testing. I think this is the anti-abortion movement saying, you know, we're going to see if there's any bridge too far for these justices or not, right? And we, we know there may be a bridge too far at this point, which is fetal personhood, but is there anything else? Or will this court essentially say, you know what, we're not worried about standing, we're not worried about timeliness, we're not worried about what the evidence actually says. We're not worried about majoritarian politics. What we're really worried about is that we don't like abortion and we don't like the administrative state. And here we have a perfect opportunity to take a shot at both. And that's the end of the analysis for us. And I, I, I just don't know, frankly, where they're going to land on that. And that would seem to be a nuclear position because as you've said throughout our conversation, there are some fairly easy ways for even most conservative justices who do not believe abortion should be a right or even an option to use the standing, to use the sort of uh, sloppiness of this decision with regard to political language, um, to just say they don't have standing and let it go and, and not have the five votes that could allow yeah, us I mean, to move I, forward. Exactly. I mean, I think back in the day, people like me would think that, like you would teach your students about test cases, right? And you'd like, for example, when the ACLU took Loving versus Virginia, the anti-miscegenation case to the Supreme Court, they were very careful about who the plaintiffs were, what the statute was, you know, because the thought was, even if you had a group of sympathetic justices, and even if you had great legal arguments, when you were dealing with a political lightning rod like miscegenation laws, you had to be careful. You had to come up with the perfect case, right? This is like the anti-perfect case, right? Like, it's like bad facts, no standing, 23 years too late, etc. And so I, I think that's what I mean about boundary testing, that if you're, even if, you know, you're a justice who's thinking, you know, I would totally love an opportunity to make it harder for people to get abortions or to undermine the power of the administrative state, in normal times, they would not take this case as the vehicle to do those things, just because it's such a flawed case. And really, I think the interesting question is, you know, we're, we're clearly not in normal times anymore, but like how abnormal have they become, right? Like, do all the old rules not apply such that you can really have a case like this one where most observers are looking at this and saying, this is just a trash case on any number of metrics. But it doesn't matter because the justices' commitments 
on abortion in the administrative state runs so deep that procedural flaws just don't bother them. I, I want to ask you a question about teaching your students, um, because I, I've been watching these conversations quite a bit on Twitter among law professors as to whether they continue to teach constitutional law as it's been taught. There are precedents. The court is bound by these precedents. Uh, as you say, when you want to bring a case that's going to push the law in a different direction, you're careful, you have facts, you have uh, uh, um, very, very uh, clean plaintiffs that can make the case. But as you say, are we in normal times? And I'm wondering how this has affected how you teach constitutional law to your students. Are, are, and, and at what point would, would law schools inject the kind of political arguments about the court? This, it's not actually the words of the Constitution that are binding. There's something else going on. And I'm just wondering how you handle that balance as you're training new attorneys. I mean, I think it, it's a little easier for me because I'm a legal historian. And so I've, I've never really just taught constitutional law straight up, right? I've never sort of been like, look, law is this thing that happens. And it's all based on good arguments just because, you know, if you're a historian and you study social movements and judges and political parties, you just are probably never saw things that way. So we still read cases. Um, but I think I've always taught judicial decisions and really legislation, too, as, as part of kind of broader dialogue between, you know, movements, parties, the media um, and judges rather than judges doing this thing called law that's removed from politics. Um, I think that it's still hard even for me in the sense that the law is changing so much. So I think in the past, even if you talk constitutional law the way I do, there was sort of a stickiness to constitutional law, right? The idea that was that if you had a major constitutional precedent, it wasn't very likely that the Supreme Court was going to overrule it and all of the other major constitutional precedents in a, in a short period. So even if you're telling people, you know, the Constitution has its own politics, it's still weird to tell them, okay, here, here is the law, but it could change, you know, in the next six months, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I think that the kind of um, that piece of things is still hard for them because I think the idea of law is something that has any kind of durability or any kind of predictability, right? I mean, I think we, in, in lawyers often, when they talk about precedent, speak of reliance interests, right? That people sort of order their lives around the idea that the rules are the rules and will not radically change. I don't think you really can teach a lot of things that way anymore because again, this court is conservative, yes, but the Supreme Court has had conservative majorities for a long time at this point. It, it doesn't really behave the way the court has in the past in the sense that the court is taking up more major issues, it's taking them up much more quickly. It's ruling in ways that are kind of maximalist. In other words, instead of trying to avoid the big explosive ruling, the court is often seeking those out, even in, in scenarios where it would be quite easy to avoid that outcome. Um, they're moving further, as any number of studies have documented, from popular opinion on a range of issues. And so all of that makes precedent much more 
fragile and that makes it harder to teach law as law, right? Because you're saying to people, law is somehow different from, you know, a political talking point or something more evanescent and that simultaneously telling them this, that, and the other precedent are actually, you know, potentially under fire sooner rather than later. Well, Mary, um, thank you so much for taking time uh, on 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 vacation and on the fly and in a time zone where it's really, really early right now um, to to talk to us about this um, evolving story and also for the work that you've done uh, over time to give us the historical perspective that I think is is often lacking in these conversations. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to. I'm happy I could do it. In our first segment, legal historian Mary Ziegler noted that Judge Kaczmarek's order relies on the Comstock Act of 1873 to ban the commonly used drug mifeprostin. But the Comstock Act isn't familiar to most journalists, scholars, and members of the public. I'm thrilled to have a scholar who's been researching and teaching Comstock for years. Dr. Rebecca Kreitzer is Associate Professor of Public Policy and Adjunct Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Rebecca, welcome. Um, There is some misinformation out there about Comstack. So let's start with a little background on the law's relationship to reproductive choice. What what prompted the passage of Comstack in 1873 and, and what effect did it have on reproductive health in the early 20th century? I'm so excited to have this opportunity to talk about the Comstock Act in part because when I teach my three-day unit on reproductive rights in my sexuality and gender policy class, I start with Comstock because Comstock is really um, the policy that sets the stage for um, you know, the, the next 150 years of constitutional history. So what is the Comstock Act? The Comstock Act starts with this gentleman named Anthony Comstock, who um, was very offended at what he saw as a lot of obscenity and lascivious behavior in society. And he thought that it was important that, um, that Congress address this by putting in place a new law that would regulate the morals of society. So he managed to get himself by the age of 29 um, appointed as the the Solicitor General of the USPS, the U.S. Postal Service, and um, and Congress passed a law in 1873, actually under suspension of the rules with almost no discussion in Congress. Um, and what it did is it criminalized the USPS to send obscenity, contraceptives, abortifacients, sex toys, personal letters with any sexual content or information or any information regarding the above. Um, And the law itself didn't make any differentiation for legal legal distribution of information such as medical information about contraceptives. Um, It's worth noting that that law was put in um, alongside it was a punishment for it. In fact, that there could be up to five years of hard labor uh, for selling, lending, or giving away any, quote, obscene publication or any other um, um, device used for contraception or abortion. So in the decades after Congress uh, passed this act, the courts right away were uh, faced with a series of cases um, that 
that really shed light on the wide ranging implications of the laws. Most of the court rulings focus on contraception and most of the court rulings read Comstock very narrowly to apply to when someone quote, knowingly mailed something that would be used in violation of existing laws on abortion or contraception. So from the early challenges to Comstock, there was an understanding at the courts uh, that Comstock wouldn't be used to um, to regulate or, or, or uh, crack down on legal behavior. So what were some of these challenges? Well, um, Comstock was particularly obsessed with Margaret Sanger and her husband, William Sanger. And in fact, through you know the 1950s to the 1930s, Sanger herself was um, convicted, I think, on eight different obscenity charges, as well as her husband. And some of these were for doing things um, like promoting contraceptive devices to cure and prevent uh, venereal disease. Uh, Sanger um, arranged for a shipment of diaphragms to be mailed from Japan uh, when the U.S. Customs confiscated that package, uh, Sanger filed a lawsuit to say that these were uh, medical devices and that uh, the law shouldn't restrict that. And in 1936, a federal appeals court ruled um, that the federal government can't interfere with doctors providing contraception to their patients. Um, and in fact, you know, quoting from that decision, the law says the law's design, in our opinion, was not to prevent the importation, sale, or carriage by mail of things which might intelligently be employed by conscientious and competent physicians for their purpose of saving life or promoting the well-being of their patients. Um, And so the word unlawful would make this clear, the ruling said, and the courts have read an exemption into the act covering such articles, even when the word unlawful is not used. And so really, even though Comstock Act was put in place in the late uh, 1870s, really since the early 20th century, there's been an understanding that the Comstock law wouldn't be used to to make illegal uh, speech about things that are otherwise legal. That that language is really striking in 2023, because we're seeing states passing laws that do not cast physicians as, quote unquote, conscientious and competent professionals who are, quote unquote, intelligently saving lives or promoting well-being. And the use of that term well-being just, wow, that's just incredible to hear you say it. But, but that language isn't focused on the individual person who might use birth control or become pregnant. When do we see that shift and does it come from activists or Congress or, or the courts? What, what, what happens? Well, from this time period, the early 1930s, the Comstock Act started to become somewhat dormant in that it wasn't being used to crack down on um, especially Um, information and speech relating to legal contraception and abortion. So in the 1960s, there was um, a recognition that Comstock was still in place and that could still be um, uh, blocking the ability of doctors to um, advertise their services about contraception. And so some doctors filed a lawsuit um, in in the case of Poe versus Ullman in 1961. And the case was, um, was, 
the the case uh, was dismissed because it was a lack of standing. And the court said that because Comstock hadn't been challenged and so nobody had been um, levied with criminal charges in response to it, the the, the law wasn't ripe. The standing um, wasn't there. And so Justice Harlan, um, in his very famous dissent, uh, in fact, references the 14th Amendment. And he says that the 14th Amendment, you know, implies that a rational continuum, which broadly speaking, includes a freedom from all substantial arbitrary impositions and purposeless restraints. You know, the idea of um, that we should have the, no um, deprivation of the our life, liberty, and property. Uh, but the Supreme Court, you know, said that because Comstock hadn't been challenged, the case wasn't ripe, and so it was dismissed. So Estelle Griswold, local hero in Connecticut, along with her co-conspirator, Dr. C. Lee Buxton, uh, intentionally opened a family planning clinic in 1961 in violation of the law. They wanted to challenge Comstock. And so they made it very clear that what they were doing was illegal. They advertised and they were arrested on the first day um, after opening their their clinic. Uh, and so this case made it before the Supreme Court in the very famous and landmark case, Griswold versus Connecticut. In this case, uh, the court um, decide, ruled that there is, through the process of substantive due process, which is a process, I think of it as kind of like the transitive pro- process of transitive property of, of, of kind of legal rights, which is it is the process of identifying rights by way of other rights. And in the, in the Griswold versus Connecticut decision, the Supreme Court ruled that there was a right to privacy that people had that was um, implicit in the Bill of Rights. And in particular, in the first, the third, the fourth, and the ninth amendments. Um, and therefore, because these different aspects of the Bill of Rights implied that there was a right to privacy, therefore, there'd be a right to marital privacy. And so that's actually how we get the right to privacy through Griswold, which at first um, pertained only to heterosexual married couples, but was extended in Eisenstein versus Baird a couple of years later to unmarried couples. And that legal reasoning of the right to privacy and substantive due process is core to a whole host of other issues, including the right to abortion and Roe and Dobbs, as well as other issues like the right to um, sodomy or same-sex marriage. Um, thanks so much. Those are really, really hard cases to summarize quickly. And, and I should note that Justice Thomas comes out very explicitly in his concurrence in Dobbs to say, we must overturn Griswold, that that logic that you say is built and then taken through Roe v. Wade and Casey and then overturned in Dobbs. Thomas agrees, and he's willing to say, in fact, you don't have a right to access birth control. Uh, The other thing that jumps out about me about what you're saying is that, you know, as Mary was talking us through the the case that we're going to, that that everybody is thinking about today, you know, she said that normally like a test case is really clean. You know, it's perfect. The plaintiffs, the statues, the facts. And what's fascinating here is that the Supreme Court in, in Baird is, is saying, actually, I'm sorry, in Povey Ullman, I misspoke, is, is saying like, I'm sorry, you don't have standing because you haven't experienced concrete injury. You don't have a harm. And, and then you see Estelle Griswold set this up in Griswold, and, and many cases like this are 
are in fact set up as a test case for the courts. So, so interesting to see as we're going to think through these issues of standing um, that they've always played a role here. And there's been a very high standard for when it is that you are personally injured because you and I may not like a law, but we don't get to just put up our hand and, and go to the Supreme Court to get uh, a response. Okay, so once we get to this point at which the Supreme Court has said yes in this word liberty in the 14th Amendment, this includes access to birth control, both as a couple, uh, as a heterosexual couple, and also as an individual later. That, so was Comstock repealed by this? Um, like what, what, what happens next? A lot of people think that Comstock Act was repealed or made moot by uh, the, the Griswold case, but actually that's not true. So in 1971, shortly after the Griswold case, Congress removed the language concerning contraception from the Comstock Act. Um, and from then on, the federal courts through, you know, through Roe v. Wade in, until now have really interpreted that the restriction on the on speech about pertaining to abortion is only in the context of illegal abortion. So since 1971, Congress said that speech about contraception is legal and the federal courts have interpreted it to mean the Comstock, interpreted the Comstock Act to say that only illegal speech about abortion would be restricted. Uh, so you might think, okay, 1971, that was a while. It's been dead since then, but that's not true either. Actually, in 1994, the maximum fine was increased from $5,000 to $250,000 for a first-time offense, um, and it still didn't make any exceptions for legal activity. And then a couple of years ago, a couple of years later, um, in 1996, when there was the Communications Decency Act, which was the first attempt by Congress to regulate the internet and especially pornography on the internet. Um, and so part of this is the Telecommunications Act. Um, and what this act did was it criminalized, among other things, discussing abortion, which again has a potential punishment of up to five years in jail, $250,000 in fines, or both. Now, what's interesting to say is that while this law passed in 1996, no one has ever been charged with violating this provision. When Clinton signed the act, he objected to the ban on abortion-related speech, and the Justice Department said that that part of the law was unconstitutional, and his Attorney General, Janet Reno, informed Congress that her department wouldn't defend the constitutionality of that part of the law, and the DOJ has never changed its policy on enforcing the ban, so the ban has been in place since 1996, um, and it's never been, um, uh, people have never faced charges because of it, but that's not to say that it's not there. Uh, in fact, at the behest of famous Illinois Republican Representative Henry, um, Henry Hyde, who you may know his name for the infamous Hyde Amendment, the Hyde Amendment, uh, which has been attached to many different laws and budgets since the early 1970s, prohibits any federal funds from going to abortion. In this case, uh, Henry Hyde inserted very last minute into the bill that it would then update the Comstock Act of 1873 to add interactive computer services to the catalog of illegal distribution methods. At the time, two Democrats, Senator Frank Lautenberg of New Jersey and Representative Pat Schroeder of Colorado, proposed amending the Comstock Act of 1873 to remove abortion from its prohibitions, but it didn't go anywhere. It died in committee and the Judiciary Committee and the Speaker of the House and the Senate. It didn't move forward. Uh, Pat Schroeder in particular has a, a pretty 
I think, a, a very prescient speech that she gave in 1996, in which she talked about how even though the law wasn't being enforced, the prohibition on lawful discussion about abortion could have an impact on, and she says, like, it could impact things like telemedicine abortion. So she is like 20 years ahead of the rest of us in understanding that. And we'll have a link to her speech um, in the show notes. Uh, Wow. So uh, we're in a world really different from 1873. Uh, It's one now that includes the the internet and telemedicine. Amazing that in the 90s, there's this assumption. It's not a conversation about free speech, interestingly, that you can't talk about this thing. It's somehow connected to pornography. But as you say, like the Congress is banning abortion related speech, but nobody's enforcing the ban. Uh, So uh, I I think that's also just sort of fascinating for us to hold that we actually have had these ambiguities and they've just sat there for decades until Friday when we had to rethink Comstack again in a, in a very different way. Well, I think um, it speaks to how we, you know, we often see our policymakers introducing and passing laws that are blatantly unconstitutional or not in line with existing precedent. But that doesn't mean that the laws don't get passed and put on the books. It just means that they don't get enforced. But enforcement can change over time. No, and you've and you've written that. Well, we'll talk about that later. Um, elsewhere, you have said that there are a handful of other rulings on Comstack, uh, uh, but none. Um, but it's, it's basically unenforced for this long period of time. And it's dormant for almost the entire lifespan of Roe v. Wade, which is nearly five decades. So the law is on the books, but it's entirely unprosecuted. So I think this brings us back to Judge Kaczmarek's order, because um, he doesn't do what is typical, a factual account of the history Um, It's a very, very strange order. So can you take us up to the present so we can understand why Judge Kaczmarek is relying on Comstack and the implications for higher courts if uh, they accept his interpretation? Yeah, I will. And I want to echo what you said. I've read many court cases over the years, and this is a very unusual decision in how it's written, um, the, the, the rhetoric and the terms used, the legal arguments drawn upon. Um, and it's, it's actually kind of a, a, a confusing story about how Comstock gets involved in this case. Um, and so maybe before I can get to how Comstock gets involved in this case, let me briefly say just a little bit about kind of the FDA's regulation of mifepristone, which is the drug that is being challenged in Texas. And then I'll explain how Comstock kind of gets wrapped into it. So let me first start by saying mifepristone is one of two drugs used in a two-drug protocol to induce medication abortion. But mifepristone is used for a lot of other things as well, including uh, the management of miscarriage. Um, After a miscarriage, if products of conception are retained, it can cause sepsis and death. Um, And so mifepristone is an important uh, medical device that ensures the well-being of patients. Um, 
over the uh, the FDA was first approved in the U.S. in 2000, and it's been um, an authorized drug for over two decades. And there have been hundreds of studies that have all demonstrated that mifepristone is a safe drug. In fact, the New York Times has a, a great article with a good infographic uh, where they go through, you know, re- literally the hundreds of, of of studies that indicate the safety of mifepristone. Well, politics interferes with the FDA approval of mifepristone. Mifepristone from the beginning. So from the beginning, uh, mifepristone uh, was put under a special approval process and uh, was required to have uh, a REMS strategy. REMS stands for Risk Evaluation Mitigation Mitigation Strategy. And basically, um, REMS exists uh, for certain classes of pharmaceuticals under the FDA that um, are riskier and where there needs to be more oversight to ensure that the costs and benefits are, are are fairly considered. So from the beginning, despite mifepristone being a really safe drug, it was put under this pretty onerous process um, that put in place um, uh, requirements and also some labeling um, information that was just not accurate. So over and the Catherine, years... Rebecca, oh, I'm sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt you, but, but why does that happen? Why does it get uh, defined as risky when there isn't data calling it risky? What it, what administration does it happen under? And is, is that just politics? It sounds like it's just politics, but is there something I, I more there? I think it's just politics. I mean, this, the FDA approved um, mifepristone in 2000. Um, and so that would have been in the Clinton administration. Um, and I, it's the, it's, it's politics interfering with abortion. And so for many years, there has been a growing recognition that the FDA regulation of mifepristone wasn't appropriate. Um, And so over the years, there have been a few changes. And some of the changes were, for example, that um, physicians realized that you only needed about 200 milligrams instead of 600 milligrams, which was initially required. And so many providers started off-label prescribing the lower dosage, Physicians do that all the time, prescribe off-label. But several states then started to pass laws that would require physicians to um, prescribe the higher dosage, even though it wasn't medically necessary. And so there was this push by several states over the years um, to try to force states to comply with what is really outdated FDA you know, requirements and labeling. So in, in 2016, the FDA updated the labeling for mifepristone to do a couple of things. It updated the REMS, um, you know, protocol, which is still in place, but updated. It increased the gestational limit, which with which medication abortion can be used from 49 to 70 days. It reduced the number of in-person requirements to visit down to one, which was three before, which is a lot. Um, actually, today, the medical consensus is that you don't need any any in-person visits. Uh, So three was really a very onerous requirement. Um, But nevertheless, the FDA still required an in-person requirement. Um, In 2019, the FDA then updates, again, their protocols to allow for a generic uh, medication. Then the pandemic hits. And in 2020, ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, so that's the main or professional organization, um, they challenged the REMS 
in-person dispensing requirement in light of the COVID pandemic. So they actually won their court case, uh, which enjoined the FDA from enforcing the in-person distribution requirements for REMS because of the pandemic. This was then extended in 2021 um, on a temporary basis. And then um, at the end of December and then going into effect starting in January of 2023, the FDA issued a new decision to update its labeling again after a very thorough review process. Um, And it removes entirely the in-person dispensing requirement. It also adds a requirement that pharmacies that do dispense mifepristone have to be certified. So it's worth saying that really the safety of mifepristone um, relative to other classes of medication, it shouldn't have a REMS protocol in place at all. Uh, so you asked it, it, an interesting question, which is, you know, how how does this happen where um, kind of the science gets ignored about the safety of these drugs? Um, and I'll tell you that there's bad science out there and that some of it is the interpretation of some of the um, the data cited in these amicus briefs and in this court decision. Some of them are just like a bad interpretation of the data. So so, for example, um, it's it's important to focus on severe um, uh, health consequences um, in response to a drug as opposed to just all uh, negative consequences. So, for example, with, with medication abortion, sometimes people will go to the emergency room because they're passing blood clots and they're not sure how much blood is blood clots are normal to pass. That's not a severe consequence, um, but... It, but it is a case where somebody goes to the ER, but that shouldn't be counted as, as like a severe consequence to it. Um, and another example, and this is actually something that I'm personally doing research on, is that one of the articles that's, that is cited in this decision by Matthew Kaczmarek is an article by a woman named Priscilla Coleman. And this is an article from the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2011, which, which purports to say that um, abortion causes psychological distress. Well, that study has been uh, resoundedly uh, discredited uh, really shortly after it was published uh, for bad methodological problems, including, for example, that um, previous levels of psychological distress are not controlled for in the study. Um, And so it would be inaccurate to say that abortion causes psychological distress when there is a selection mechanism. So my point in bringing that up is to say that there's a lot of bad science out there many of which has been pushed back against, that there are articles that demonstrate the bad science, but that's not stopping policymakers from using those articles. Um, and and so, like that study that I mentioned is not just cited in this decision by Matthew Kismarek, it was also uh, discussed by policymakers in Tennessee, for example, when they talked about uh, why they passed the law for affirmative defense. Okay, you asked me how this relates to Comstock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, how do we get, look, look, how, why this, uh, you you alluded to this and uh, talked about this a little bit with Mary. This is a really strange decision. Lots of us have read decisions in which we may not agree with the outcome, but there is a format for the law. There's one that demands a certain kind of telling of the facts. There, it, it may not always be as complete as one would want, but there's usually a both sides. There's this, there's that, and here's why we decide this. This is very, very different. So I, I'd like your take on, uh, you know, first the sort of the, your general impressions of this, but also like 
why is comms why is he using comstack uh and 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 how does it function for him as a tool as a legal tool mm-hmm. absolutely as someone who's read many decisions um i again just want to emphasize that the way this is an unusual one um it's not a neutral recounting of the facts it's basically an agreement with all of the really distorted facts and evidence uh, brought forward by the plaintiffs in this case. Um, And you can really see it in the extremely inflammatory language that's used. So for example, instead of talking about medication abortion, um, Kaczmarek uses the phrase um, chemical abortion almost a hundred times, refers to um, providers uh, as abortionists and talks about how um, medication abortion is you know, in, in very gruesome words, killing a human life when talking about an embryo. Um, and so you can see just in the adoption of the language and the rhetoric um, from the anti-abortion rights movement that he's been very, he's been long a part of. Um, and so that's very clear in his decision. It does not read as a neutral decision. So how does this relate to Comstock? Well, actually, he wasn't the first one to bring it up. Um, So conservatives in recent years have been kind of toying with uh, Comstock and and floating around the idea of using Comstock today in a new light. Uh, In fact, I always think it's kind of interesting. There's even like... Um, there's a documentary a couple of years ago that um, was filmed or that was produced by an evangelical group um, called the birth control movie. It's a very biased documentary, but there's a whole 15 minute segment in which uh, that's about Anthony Comstock, the hero, the fighter and about, you know, his biography and his role. And so there's been a growing recognition of Comstock and the Comstock acts as being a potentially fruitful venue for challenging some of these things. Okay. So, Here's kind of how it relates to this particular case. In December, around the time that the FDA um, regulation for mifepristone changed to permanently say that um, the in-person dispensing requirements were not there, the DOJ also issues a memo and the DOJ brings up Comstock in particular. In this case, the Office of Legal Counsel noted that mifepristone can be used for purposes other than abortion. Like I mentioned before, it's often used in miscarriage management, among other things, and that all states still allow abortion to save the life of a pregnant patient. Um, And so the DOJ clarifies that someone sending drugs through the mail will typically lack complete knowledge of whether the drugs are being used lawfully. The reason why the DOJ memo says says that here is because historically the courts have not applied the Comstock Acts to those things that are lawful. Um, And so in the DOJ memo, it says, therefore, even when a sender or deliverer of mifepristone or misoprostol, including the USBS, knows that a package contains those drugs, uh, such knowledge alone is not a basis for concluding that the law has been violated. Well, when it comes to the arguments in Texas, in this case, we have the Alliance defending or the um, the Hippocrat, I can't remember what they're called, the um, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and then they have another group that's, I can't remember what they're called, but that is challenging this law. Um, the Alliance Defending Freedom is the legal counsel kind of behind that group. Anyway, during the um, the argument in 
before um, Justice or Judge Kismarek, uh, Aaron Hawley, the attorney for the ADF, brought up Comstock and pointed out that nothing in the text of the law says that the law only applies to unlawful abortions, uh, and in fact refers to this as bread and butter statutory interpretation, and also references, for example, textualism, and that a textualist interpretation of the Comstock Act doesn't say anything about the uh, speech only being limited to lawful, unlawful activities. Um, and so again, just to reiterate, that's how it's been this whole time. So that's what they're challenging. In fact, like the, the lawyer representing the FDA was taken off guard by this emphasis of Comstock um, and was pretty taken off guard by this whole reasoning in general, in part because the FDA doesn't do anything about mailing or distributing of drugs. What the FDA does is the FDA says what is um, approved to be a legal um, pharmaceutical that can be distributed under certain conditions. It doesn't say anything about mailing things. And so it's kind of a confusing thing that Comstock was brought up at all. But nevertheless, Kaczmarek really, again, um, just welcomes the arguments of the attorneys representing the plaintiffs who want to ban Mifepristone. And Kaczmarek takes a very textualist approach to the Comstock Acts, even referencing the the recent Bokstock Act, which was a in, um, Bokstock case, which was a case where Justice Gorsuch used a very textualist interpretation of the, the law to say that um, discrimination on gender identity and sexual orientation is illegal. So Kaczmarek says that the Comstock Act did declares non-mailable and then, you know, quotes from what it says. And it doesn't say anything about um, making exceptions about the lawfulness at all. So that's what, that's how Comstock relates to this. It seems like, why is it related to it in the first place? It's not really a natural connection because the FDA doesn't do anything about mailing, which is what Comstock Act does. The FDA just says what things are approved or not. So who would enforce uh, as you say, the FDA is supposed to make an assessment. Is this safe or is this not safe? They're supposed to be doing scientific inquiry. They're supposed to be looking at the kind of data. And we will have connected to the show notes what you mentioned, the 100 plus uh, scholarly articles that the New York Times put together. So that's their job. So who would enforce this? I mean, if if tomorrow the Supreme Court declared, in fact, you know, this is not the case, who would be the person stepping in? Is it self-enforcing? What 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 does that look like? Well, it's a very it's I, I think a lot is unknown what is going to happen at this point, because it's worth being really clear that the that there's another court case, that there's this case in Texas. There's another court case out of Washington. And actually, those two court decisions should be valued equally. They, those judges have like the same stature in the hierarchy of, of the judiciary. And, and those two court decisions are absolutely in contradiction with each other. They can't both go uh, they both can't be um, applied to their full extent in the way that the judges who wrote those decisions would have them have them go. So, you know, in that in this case, it's like in the Texas case, Kazmarek takes a really broad sweeping um, um, 
conclusion that he makes. He says he doesn't he doesn't say that the FDA should restart the process to consider whether or not mifepristone is safe or not. He puts in place a nationwide injunction and gives seven days um, for the FDA and the and the federal government to reply. So the Washington l- lawsuit, just you know, a really brief description of that case, this is a case where you have an attorney general in in Washington, as well as 17 other attorneys general in democratic states. And what they were trying to do was to, for, they sued the Biden administration, which is a little unusual to have democratic states sue the administration of a democratic president, but they're suing the, the Biden's FDA to require um, that the status quo be maintained um, with respect to the authorization and availability of mifepristone. Though it's worth noting that actually when it came down to the oral arguments that the pl- the plaintiffs in this case, actually what they wanted was even further. They actually wanted um, and argued that there shouldn't be a REMS protocol in place at all relative to the safety of this medication and relative to how all other pharmaceuticals are regulated. In this case, the, the judge in the Washington case didn't go as far as the plaintiffs wanted, uh, both in terms of not putting, um, uh, not eliminating the REMS protocol entirely, and also by focusing on just maintaining the current status quo, and it technically only applies to the 17 states that were party to that lawsuit. So in brief, what's going on here? We have a Texas case where the one judge um, has said that there should be a nationwide injunction that blocks um, mifepristone, that the FDA should pull the authorization. Uh, and then in Washington, you have um, a judge saying that the authorization must be maintained, the status quo must be maintained, at least for those 17 states. So what will happen? Well, who knows what will happen because this is such an unusual situation. Um, Obviously what will happen is the only way both of those court cases can be you know, followed is through discretionary enforcement of the law. Um, but again, like, what does it mean? The FDA at this point in time has never authorized drugs to be legal authorized drugs in some states and not other states. Um, and uh, the other thing that's kind of notable is that the Washington case um, is saying that the FDA should reevaluate the safety of this drug. And so is, is maintaining the status quo until that can happen. Whereas in the Texas case, um, it's it's blocking the drug um, and really overriding the typical FDA authorization process. Which is fascinating because, as you noted earlier, uh, it's unclear that anyone had standing uh, to bring that Texas case. There's nobody who came with harm. There's, they weren't able to find, uh, and Mary noted this earlier in the program, they weren't able to find anybody who even claimed to have been harmed, to claim to have had severe problems, or a doctor who had particular patients. This, this really was very, very tenuous. So were a court to favor this, it would mean that any doctor could claim that any drug needed to be reevaluated by the FDA. And we've never seen anything like that in U.S. legal history or political history. It goes it goes so far to allow that. And, and just to 
to be really clear, you know, in the argument that Kaczmarek is accepting here is that the the plaintiffs who brought forth this case, they've had no personal harm from this at all. But what they say is that this drug is really unsafe. And so it's going to overburden and harm hospitals that are already overburdened. In fact, Kaczmarek even references um, a growing trend that I'm very concerned about, something I researched, which is maternity care deserts. There's been a growing expansion of places all across the U.S. where obstetric and gynecology departments are closing their doors and no longer um, um, allowing people to give birth there and is using the justification of mifepristone causes all this harm that it's going to swamp people in emergency departments. But that is such a ludicrous interpretation of reality because in no way are average doctors being harmed by a flood of people going to emergency departments for this drug. It's just, it's the, there's no factual grounding for that circumstance. It also ignores some really important medical history, which is that in the United States, we used to have hospitals with septic wards. And that was because it was uh, very common for people to have you know, material left in the uterus for it to become infected and for people to become extremely ill. So interestingly, the the opinion, which is it just this is why this opinion is so strange. It, it really goes in radical directions and it gives information. It cites information that is not well-founded, but it doesn't deal with the fact that, yes, that is correct. But if you were to get rid of a drug that is used in the treatment of miscarriages, then you would see more need for another kind of maternal care that we have eliminated because of, or practically eliminated because of drugs like this. Um, yeah, and I just the take... precedent is crazy, true. Like, just to reiterate what you said, it's like this, allowing this reasoning means that any any doctor could file a claim of harm to, to have the FDA um, unauthorized any class of medication. Uh, and that is just such a broad, broad power uh, that really, really, really takes away the role of the FDA um, and gives that decision-making about which drugs are safe to judges who have no training at all in, in making these evaluations. Uh, really smart people who I know who are not lawyers or political scientists uh, have asked me to ask some questions on on this podcast. And one of them has to do with like how this is in the federal courts in the first place, because uh, it seemed in Dobbs, if you took it, uh, Alito, Judge Justice Alito, uh, most generously, he was insisting that it was democratic to overturn Roe v. Wade and it was important to leave it to the states. Um, you know, earlier, Mary Ziegler noted, like, democracy has two components. It is laws passed by majorities, but it's also fundamental rights that are protected from majorities. But you've written previously on another element of uh, Alito's claims about democracy involving how it is that people vote, uh, particularly access that, um, that some groups have to voting. And I guess I want to ask you to repeat some of that. And I also want to ask you what you're thinking now, because as one of the things that Mary said earlier was that, look, there have been these statewide referendums. And in every case, they have either, uh, you know, left the status quo. We do not want to stop access to abortion or they've expanded access to abortion. So I wonder what you're thinking now um, about 
about the ability of uh, the local level to act, uh, to address this. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's. I think it's such a clear trend that so far since Dobbs, in every case where abortion has been on the ballot, both in terms of special elections, like in the most expensive judicial election in history in Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago, as well as ballot initiatives like that one in Kansas, in every case in since Dobbs, the abortion rights candidate or ballot issue has won out and not by particularly slim margins. Actually, in some of these states, it's it's kind of sitting around a 55 to 60 percent margin, which is relatively safe. Absolutely. When you look at public opinion on the issue of abortion, there has never been appetite for banning abortion entirely or having very, very narrow restrictions. Even before Dobbs, that wasn't politically popular. But to many people before Dobbs, the issue of abortion was abstract, and they didn't really understand how the implications shape you know, health and, and reality. After Dobbs, there's been even more news coverage about how um, abortion is, is a very common standard practice procedure after miscarriage, about how um, kind of the health conditions that people face, and, and even things like there's been a lot of interest in the past among certain groups to ban all elective abortions. Well, what does elective mean? Actually, most people don't know that elective means any surgery that can be scheduled in the future. So even if you have cancer um, and the cancer is killing you um, and you need to have a surgery to address that, that still is considered an elective surgery. Um, and so I think after Dobbs, people are understanding this issue of abortion in different terms. The stakes are different. And we can see that in a few ways. One is there is even more reticence to pass sweeping bills with extremely narrow or no exceptions. There's also been a complete flip in terms of which groups of people are most mobilized on the issue of abortion. Before Dobbs, it was conservatives who were most likely to say that abortion um, and abortion decisions were central to their choice in which candidate they will support in the next election. But after Dobbs, it's flipped, and it's especially Democrats, and especially Democratic young women that say that the abortion issue is extremely important to them. Uh, and so we're seeing just like this big shift in public opinion, shift in how people are understanding abortion. And conservative lawmakers in states are realizing this. And it's not just abortion. Um, in response to a number of ballot initiatives that have pushed policy in a liberal direction, including raising minimum wage, allowing for the legalization of marijuana in several states, uh, Republican lawmakers have uh, tried to move forward by restricting the ability of the citizens to shape policy directly. Um, and so we're seeing a big disconnect between what the people are trying to do and, and what policymakers are trying to do. In some of my other work, I've pointed out that um, in Alito's decision, basically he says that this should be, a dis you know, the issue of abortion should be left up to people and their elected representatives. And as I've written about um, with my colleague Candace Smith in the Washington Post, not everybody has equal access to the ballot. And in fact, that there has been a long history of um, not recognizing the policy preferences, especially of Democratic women who are central to the Democratic Party. But the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is not just Alito's 
um, opinion in Dobbs, but Kavanaugh's concurring opinion. In fact, Kavanaugh's concurring opinion goes on, uh, you know, really quite at length talking about how uh, the different states should have their own, um, they have their own elected representatives and that there are differences in opinions on the issue of abortion. And Kavanaugh makes it very clear that this issue should not be a federal issue. It should be an issue to the states. And in Kavanaugh's decision, he makes it clear that the role of the judiciary is not to inject large sweeping policy from the bench. So really, the Kavanaugh decision in Dobbs is very much at odds with um, Kaczmarek's decision in the Fifth Circuit. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. Uh, You are able to clarify and bring together things that take pages and pages and pages and, and really make them so much more understandable. And I uh, truly appreciate the work that you've been doing and have benefited it myself, in my classroom, in my own writing and and here on the podcast. So thanks so much for jumping in uh, in this massive emergency podcast um, to, to let us understand why an 1873 law is really something we need to pay attention to. Absolutely. And thank you for having this ongoing series. This is an issue that for many years was seen as too contentious to talk about, and we're seeing the consequences of not addressing it um, straight on. I'm now joined by Dr. Renee Ann Kramer, Professor of Law, Politics, and Society at Drake University, and Dr. Joshua C. Wilson, Professor of Political Science at the University of Denver, to do a deep dive on this recent decision and also the wider political landscape of reproductive politics. Josh, let me start with a question I was asked by a physician. We have these two opposite rulings from Washington and Texas, and what she wants to know is, is this unusual? What happens next? Sure, and thanks for having me. The The first thing to think about here is just how the federal judiciary is organized so that the lower you go, the smaller the geographic area that the court ostensibly covers. And what that also means is we tend to think about courts uh, geographically as mapping onto political leanings as well. And so it's not uncommon for litigants, for movements, companies, so on and so forth, to seek out the court venues that I think are going to be the most receptive to the arguments they're making. And so it's kind of natural that the anti-abortion activists sought out a judge in Texas, while the states that are seeking to protect abortion access sought out a court in Washington. And what they're thinking about here are, where's the next level of appeal? What are those circuit courts and how did they lean politically? And so it's, it's not uncommon to have cases brought to different courts. But then as we move up the appeals process, this is one of those features that increases the likelihood that the Supreme Court will hear this case, is that if you have a different interpretation of law governing part of the country versus another part of the country. And so it seems weird because we think about law as this constant unified thing, but we have a lot of space for variation to exist, but also processes that exist to try to get a uniform interpretation of law at the end. And was there any particular reason why Kaczmarek, uh, is there something very particular about that form of judge shopping? Uh, Well, I think like searching, really you're just searching for the most friendly venue that you think you can get. And so, 
you know, going to going to districts in uh, in Texas is is a kind of a prime place to search if you're if you're a conservative litigant. Okay, so we imagine now that we have these two conflicting views that there's a, a chance that this will rise to the Supreme Court. Um, do we have any idea what would happen? Are there five votes on this court that would approve one of these two approaches from either Washington or Texas? No, and this is the big unknown is I think the the real way to think about this case you, we have to think about it in the context of Dobbs and the overruling of Roe versus Wade. In that, and, and the thing I would point to here to kind of make the point quickly is the division between the conservative Chief Justice Roberts and the other conservative justices on the court, and how there was a division there on how far they thought they should go. Obviously, with the majority. Um, deciding to go much further in directly overruling Roe versus Wade than, as again, the conservative chief justice thought they should go. And so that puts a big question mark out there of, well, we've already seen once that a conservative majority on the court was willing to really aggressively push the limits of, of, uh, of the law in order to seek kind of a political end with abortion that this raises that question again. How far are they willing to go? And really, there's a larger issue here, too, of needing to think about this in relation to not just abortion politics, but a larger question about federal agency power and the ability to review federal agency power. And we can have a whole other discussion here about how that factors into a much larger conservative litigation strategy. Um, And so there's that that's not I feel like it's not being talked about at all in the discussion here. We don't need to go there now by any means, but I feel like that's another big legal kind of inside baseball but but important legal strategy question that will also probably be thought about uh in the court. No, and I think that's really important. A couple of things. Like one, you know, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor always said, you know, you settle the smallest question you you can possibly settle. Like so what you're trying to do as the Supreme Court is not step into anything huge. You you want to to, if you can ever avoid it, not. And what we see, I think, increasingly, not just with abortion, is a very aggressive court. And the second thing that I really want to underline in what you said is that. The people on the court don't just care about abortion. They also care about federal power. And so the the hostility to the FDA is a completely separate issue from the thing that the FDA is regulating in this particular case. And I'm I'm really glad uh, that that you brought that up. Uh, Renee, what are you thinking about this court and what they might do? I mean, they have an excuse. The standing in this case is tenuous at best. It, um, and in reading the order myself, I was just shocked by kind of how ridiculous it is. They're, they're saying that lots of people are harmed by this, and yet there isn't one person that they could find to bring the case. So I, I'm wondering, what do you think uh, happens next? And do, do we have any insights about what this court might do and whether they're, you know, yeah, what this court might do? I really appreciate what Josh has said up up until this moment, and especially what he appended at the end. 
this court under Roberts, if Roberts had consolidated power on the court, there is a lot of room to make a very narrow judicial ruling that would, depending, of course, on what they get from the circuits, but a narrow judicial ruling that would take this Texas decision to task on issues of standing, certainly on issues of expanding the power of judicial review to include well-established administrative agency decision-making. Um, there may, may be a question if FDA, under the direction of the president, perhaps doesn't enforce the order. Then there's also a question around administrative law there that the court would have a chance to weigh in on. There are ways to get rid of this decision if you are a restrained court that don't even touch on abortion. Will that happen? I do not know. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, please. This this again is getting like when you're talking about the different audiences here, this is this is one that that speaks much We're more for to all group. audiences here on yeah. new books in political science postscript. That's the point. You know, we want we want to be able to speak to this doctor who's probably the smartest person I know and you know, people who are insiders on the court. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, and just just to bring up that this issue about standing has been such a long-standing issue in abortion politics. And one of the ways of understanding how profoundly the, the tables have turned here is I felt like I was in the upside down reading this in a way, because what used to happen is you would get anti-abortion activists attacking the standing arguments of medical associations and doctors to bring cases. And now we're getting the act, exact opposite. You're getting conservative Christian anti-abortion activists arguing for essentially arguments for standing that they used to attack. And and this shows you how much of a change has taken place in the the broader context here. And even more extreme, I mean, Justice Rehnquist would say, well, this person's no longer pregnant, so we can't have the discussion. So that, that was a big step that had to be taken in these cases because nothing ever happens in nine months in the, in the law in general to say, well, I wouldn't even be able to bring this case. Yeah, go well, ahead, Renee. This is part of why I think there is an internal inherent justification within um, this conservative legal movement. It is no longer about the pregnant person. It is about fetal personhood. So it's no longer, you're not pregnant, so we can't have standing, or, or this case is, not, is no longer ripe. It is on behalf of a, pro- a protective act on behalf of another population, I think that's clear, at least from from the Texas decision. And I think, Renee, what you say really brings up something that we should discuss. Like, who are these people bringing these cases and and why are they bringing them? I mean, Renee, your question and comment just sort of underlines the fact that what is said is not necessarily what is what is the goal. And field personhood is is uh, isn't even the language being used in this case. It's uh, it's moved to a different level of you know human being, which I think also the judge has um, uh, has reasons and puts them actually in the footnotes to sort of say why he's saying this. Anyway, who brought all of this, uh, and 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 why isn't it people who are harmed by uh, um, the um, the drug regimens or medication abortion. I know Josh has done some significant work around these populations, so I'm going to defer to him. <laughs> okay. Uh, so um, 
The two things that, that jumped out to me here were the lawyers who brought this and then the, the medical organization that's behind it as well. And so looking at the lawyer side, you have Alliance Defending Freedom, which is arguably the most significant conservative Christian public interest legal organization that's around today. And so you can basically a lot of the major kind of Christian right cases that you can think of in the last you know decade or two, you're going to find ADF behind it. And so there's kind of no surprise there. Uh, um, but what this does speak to is the infrastructure that the Christian right has been able to build over the decades and the infrastructure that the uh, anti-abortion movement has been able to build over the decades and how they're able to mobilize this now quite effectively. Um, a newer institutional addition that's part of this case as well is um, the American College of, of Pediatrics, which is a conservative a group, a small group of conservative Christian doctors who have created kind of a competing medical organization to you know try to present essentially expertise heft um, there. And and so what we can see here again are the products that have been built by decades of Christian right and anti-abortion investment in building the institutions that are needed in order to effectively act in essentially all political arenas, electoral politics, judicial politics, et cetera. There's a whole wider kind of ecosystem here, but they've built that infrastructure and that's what gives us this case. And we can see in the development of, of that organization, the American College of Pediatrics, an organization that competes with longstanding standard bearers in terms of accreditation of doctors and in terms of professionalization. So both ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the AAFP, the American Academy of Family Practitioners, both of those organizations actually not only certify to the safety of mifepristone, which is a really hard one to say. They certify as to the safety of the drug. They're also in favor of removing the restrictions on access to it that already exists even prior to this ruling. So the creation of, of another organization that in part speaks back to well-established national organizations is also part of the politics that we see going on here. Yeah. And in fact, actually, I remember just doing some research around ACPEDS a few years ago and just searching the term in media and speeches and people confuse the organizations readily, which arguably is part of the point, right? Once you have this name, it seems equivalent to other professional organizations and thus gives you validity and legitimacy and so forth. And we see that functioning in this Texas ruling as well. There's no kind of calling out of the organization versus in you know in other Supreme Court cases, you can actually see justices fighting over the expertise of the organizations in front of them. That's not really present here. And I think that really speaks to how out of step the decision is with what we would normally see uh, normally in quotation marks. Uh, in in legal documents. I mean, even somebody like Alito in Dobbs, who is taking an extremist position and in some cases using extremist language, wouldn't go as far uh, 
as the judge here, who is literally moved from using certain terminology that is accepted by these organizations, it is as if these older organizations don't even exist as you're reading the opinion. The articles, the journal articles, quote unquote, that are being uh, cited are, are not necessarily from journals that uh, one would uh, want to rely upon. And as Mary Ziegler uh, spoke to earlier, you know, some of them have been discredited. Some of the articles that they're sort of still relying upon, for example, the one that claims that women uh, undergo a kind of trauma. And, you know, that's a that's, that's a disturbing argument to say that women can't speak to their own concerns because they've been so traumatized. Well, is there anything else that we ha need to cover in terms of these, the people, the players, some of the stuff that maybe is behind the, the curtain? I think this was really good. I think it's really important for people to understand that these, these names are very significant. Let's talk a little bit more generally about... Um, this ruling and the American political landscape on abortion, on birth control, et cetera. The, the Republican Party once benefited from using abortion as a wedge issue, but now we're seeing statewide uh, referenda that are, are quite different. Um, are, are, is there some sort of serious change in the political landscape uh, happening right now that, that this uh, that we should be looking, we should be looking to see abortion as something that is important to a different set of voters. What are you guys thinking about about how abortion will affect some of these states? Here's what we know about abortion in the United States: whether or not it is safe and legal, the same proportion of unplanned pregnancies will end in abortion. So we have had an electorate that has engaged in this activity in the, whether or not it is legal. So we can then therefore probably presume that there was a similar level of public support for its safety and legality over time. I, I actually don't think we're going to see a significant shift in public opinion around whether or not abortion should be safe and legal, we might see a different form of mobilization around that set of beliefs. And we might see an electoral mobilization around that set of beliefs. No, but it's John a really good point. The public opinion has been so stable over time and it's often manipulated. I think the question is whether some of these uh, changes could in fact mobilize a different set set of voters. Uh, you know, I mean, in, in Iowa, Renee, you're at Drake, uh, the attorney general stopped this longstanding practice of the state paying for emergency contraceptives, for example, and in rare cases, abortion. And, and this has actually become an international story. The Guardian ran it yesterday. Uh, and I guess my question, I'm not an expert on uh, Iowa politics, but, you know, is, is that is when Ann Coulter says, stop, like we've won, we shouldn't do more, is she correct? The decision of the attorney general to stop state funding to survivors of sexual assault from, from receiving as part of what happens when they go to the hospital, she has stopped funding any emergency contraception to those survivors. I will tell you certainly that that will not impact electoral politics in Iowa. Because 
And the reason I say this is that the folks who are supportive of this have been in office for longer than just two years. And I have, I have sat and seen them say a rape exception is untenable. An exception um, for a six-week ban on abortion for incest is unacceptable to them. And they continue to be elected. So I'm assuming that the electorate is fine with that, those who are voting for them. The thing that I would throw in here is, again, kind of think about this a little bit more in in context uh, of, right, so when we had Dobbs overrule Roe, there was the big, you know, we talked about this before on this this podcast of like, essentially the guardrails were off and it created this huge space for experimentation. Um, And to see the appetite for conservative state legislative members, how far were they now willing to push against abortion? How aggressive were they willing to be with legislation, recognizing that they no longer could rely on the courts shooting down the most extreme state laws that stood to to mobilize a backlash, right? That, That guardrail was gone. And so there was this big question mark of how far they were willing to go. Again, so much has happened in less than a year that it's it's kind of hard to keep track of everything. But one touchstone that I would come back to is, so not Iowa, but I would go to Kansas and how a conservative state, when it was put to voters, kind of surprised everybody by protecting abortion access in Kansas. And this was an, a way out of cycle election, right? Everything, all the the background factor is pointed to this favoring conservatives and they lost. And that was a major, I think, shot across the legislative bow of you, you conservative legislative members need to be cautious with what you're doing. But what we're looking at now is we're talking about a different venue. These are lawyers bringing something in court. And one of the things that sticks out to me is how, okay, yes, the court is the place that you can maybe continue to push this when the legislature or some legislators may have lost their appetites, or you want to go for a national win as opposed to a state win. But what this also does is it keeps abortion politics on the national radar, on the national discussion. And it feels really far away, but we're coming around, like we're building our way back up to some more national elections and right and so i'm kind of curious what those discussions are that are going on in terms of a bigger strategy here of hey we might stand to make ground in the courts but what costs might that present for us in electoral politics or whether that's even happening or not like again don't know but it's kind of interesting to think about these different venues present options but they also present risks um, Renee, I want to ask you a question uh, about mifeprostine, and uh, it's part of this two-drug protocol and a medication abortion. It's the focus of this particular case. Um, medication abortions are the majority of abortions in the United States, but how is this drug used outside of abortion, uh, and you know how might this case affect Uh, people who use the drug for something that has nothing to do with abortion. 
Yeah, thank you for that question. It it has the potential to be devastating to women who are unable to access it. Um, mifeprostine is part of a two drug protocol, as you mentioned, for medication abortion, which is more than 50% of all abortions in the United States. Mifeprostine uh, works to block progestin, which then inhibits the growth of the uterine lining and makes the uterus an inhospitable place for a fertilized egg. Misoprostol is the second part of the protocol, and it helps to expel the contents of the uterus without significant cramping or bleeding. It, it makes it's a more comfortable uh, experience for someone. So for an abortion, misoprostol can be used alone. It's just a, 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 a more difficult procedure for the person undergoing it. However, for a woman who has had a miscarriage or for a person with a uterus who's had a miscarriage, Mifepristine is an absolutely essential part of the medical management of that miscarriage for many people in order to ensure the expulsion of already expired fetal tissue, in order to make sure that a woman does not get sepsis, in order to make sure that she is able to um, maintain her reproductive capacity, and to, to have a conclusion to the natural death that a miscarriage represents. So if you're unable to access this, you are at risk both physically and emotionally, mentally. Renee, is there really a clear line in all cases between what is a miscarriage? I mean, I remember my mom using the word spontaneous abortion. She didn't use the word miscarriage. So what, what, um, what, is there, a, is there a line that would be clear enough for doctors who might fear being prosecuted under these different state laws? And is it a problem for doctors who are, uh, you know, interning in one state and being a resident in another and then practicing in a third? So I'm, I would hesitate to speak too broadly about that. I will say that in states where miscarriage is suspected of being a criminal activity, where miscarriage, we call, you know, we say miscarriage has been criminalized. It really just means that what, what the police are going to care about is the intent of the person who was pregnant. Did they intend to carry this pregnancy to term or was this an attempt to miscarry by using the drug? I don't know what, what kinds of thinking doctors will use when they're approaching that question. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, taking the time. Again, this has been an ongoing series of emergency podcasts. Um, people have been made themselves available today in four different time zones. So thank you, Pacific, Mountain, Central, and Eastern. Um, is there anything, any last thought that you have that uh, you want us to include uh, reflecting on, on these cases? Well, I just want to be a little bit clear um, around the administrative law history of this drug. It has been, it was approved by FDA more than 20 years ago. And since that time, there are already unusual restrictions on the access of mifeprostine. So a person now in the entire United States has to visit a doctor for provision of the drug. They cannot fill it as a prescription at the pharmacy 
for instance, in order to manage a miscarriage. Um, so that is already an unusual restriction, and it's one that ACOG and AAFP both support the removal of. In addition, 18 states ban medication abortion via telemedicine. So 18 states, including Texas, require that a person who wants to use this drug for medication abortion have to not only they can't call in, they can't use telemedicine, they have to go to a doctor's office, which is a, another restriction on access both to the drug and to the procedure. So it's curious to me where Texas was already one of the most restrictive places to try to access the drug. Now they're simply saying we, we don't even recognize FDA approval to approve the drug. So it's really going after um going after the drug in large part because it is something that is so widely used, 50% of all abortions, but also so widely used even prior sometimes to a knowing of being pregnant. So a, a suspicion of pregnancy or a risk of pregnancy, especially a risk associated with a sexual assault. So it's really saying there is no way to access this drug in a very unique way, um, given that it is an FDA approved and widely recognized as safe for the user drug. Josh, last thoughts? Sure. The, I, I think about this in terms of, in part, in terms of larger political strategies and potential. And, and I go back to kind of the chain that I, I was laying out earlier of thinking about this infrastructure that Christian conservatives have built over time, thinking about these, this idea of competing expertise and how that enables them to essentially start using the courts to challenge uh, movements or, or groups or, or to, to be active in policy arenas where they have a, a very strong stance. So we see that with abortion. When I think of ADF and I think of ACPEDS, the other arena where they have been very active lately is in anti-trans uh, policy. And when we start thinking about anti-trans strategies and so forth, well, there's also, in a, we've seen this going on, this whole discussion of medical therapy. And so when I think about this case, I also start to think about it of if it's successful here, this provides the raw materials and context to take one step over in the portfolio and start seeing what you can do in terms of anti-trans policy. And so yeah. that's the other thing to see here. And then the, 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 other, the other one I brought up earlier is just like, we can also just have a, a much bigger discussion here about agency power. And that that extends far beyond Christian conservatives into a much broader discussion of the conservative legal movement and, and what's been sought for decades. And so, so yes, we should be talking about abortion politics here, but we also shouldn't just be focused on that one thing. We need to really be thinking also about how this relates to, to bigger parts of kind of the conservative legal movement and the conservative Christian legal movement. Oh, thank you both so much. Uh, you're both so knowledgeable and you also know how to make things uh, complex and simple at the same time. So uh, Dr. Renee Ann Kramer, Dr. Joshua C. Wilson, thanks again for joining PostScript. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Susan. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for organizing these. You do a great job with them.